On December 2nd, 2010, Beth Ozilup was working her shift as a concierge at the Swanky Valencia Apartments in Melbourne, Australia, when she went to the trash compactor room to find a broom. Beth tried to open the door, but something was in the way. Frustrated, she threw her shoulder into it, opening the door and triggering an automatic sensor that flooded the dark room with light, illuminating the bloodied, lifeless body of Phoebe Hanschuk among the garbage on the floor. Was Phoebe's fall down a garbage chute an act of suicide, a tragic accident, or was foul play involved? I'm Marina. With me, I have my two best friends, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. never tire of that i dance to it every single time our theme music is a jam it's it so is good. a jam i love it yeah. yeah guys this week i'm bringing you a case that's very very far from connecticut <laughs> we are going to the land down under to yes. discuss the death of phoebe hands and while this case uh can't technically be called unsolved it is definitely a mystery and you know what I fully intend to tell it gravely. Ooh. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And will he question if there was murder? You may. Mm. You may You mm. may have some lingering questions at the end. Mm. Will it be insidious? Probably. I'm so excited. It's checking all the boxes. I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, my biggest sources. So there is a podcast called Phoebe's Fall that was very well done. There's a lot of like firsthand interviews with mm. a lot of the players that we're going to be talking about. So... Um, If anybody's very interested in this, I highly recommend that podcast. I also read the book Into the Darkness, The Mysterious Death of Phoebe Hanschuk by Robin Bowles. And there's an episode of 60 Minutes Australia, along Mm with uh, various other news articles from the internet that I read. Wow. So I like how I was like, I'm not going to pick a case with a book. And then I was like, just kidding. It has a book. I read it. (laughs) As As well as a documentary and many other documentaries. So yeah, in typical fashion, um, every piece of information that I found was just so important to me and I thought it was so interesting. So I have about 20 pages of notes, guys. So buckle up. And by about, she means exactly, literally <laughs> exactly. 20 pages. It is all the way to the number 20 on the last page. So yeah, Single somebody, spaced aerial, <laughs> eight really point is. font. It no really bullets. is single spaced. Uh, and I think it is, it might be like nine, oh, might okay. be nine point. I don't know. I have one additional shout out to give you the fact that you do that on your actual phone i do which just Insane. upsets me to the core i have and impresses s- me with that many pages i was like oh this is at the bottom scroll 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 <laughs> scroll 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 okay got it mm-hmm. your poor eyes i know, I know. I'm going got that. it done i already wear glasses it's fine <laughs> all right so let's jump right into it so i'm going to tell you a little bit about uh phoebe Hanschuk. Uh, So she was born on May 9th, 1986, as the firstborn child of three to Natalie and Len Hanschuk. Uh, Phoebe had two younger brothers, Tom and Nikolai. Phoebe's mother described her as a wild child. She said she had an active imagination and loved natural spaces and wild places, especially the ocean. She was very creative. She drew, painted, wrote poetry, and kept a journal all her life. And Phoebe was described as being an incurable, romantic, intuitive, and very sensitive. Mm. 
She was also described as athletic, a fast runner, spirited, stubborn, and she had a strong sense of justice. Her mother said that when Phoebe was fouled during a basketball game, she would start playing harder and faster. And the parents would all be like, wow, she (laughs) should play like that all the time. But it was just Phoebe getting karma on the person that had wronged her. Yes. Is she a Taurus? Is May 9th Taurus? I think so. I have no idea. I think so. Mm -hmm. I approve. (laughs) I I love how Phoebe sounds. I want to be friends with her. Oh, yeah. She sounds like a really cool person. Uh, She was very close with her grandmother, Jeanette Campbell. When Phoebe was in her teens, they became closer than ever. Uh, Jeanette would often stay at Natalie and Len's house. So Phoebe and Jeanette would spend time together and talk about anything and everything. Phoebe would tell her grandmother about things going on in her life. In her mid-teens, Phoebe started hanging out with what her grandmother called, quote, the wrong crowd. Mm. Phoebe and her friends started experimenting with speed, ecstasy, marijuana, and alcohol. And Phoebe admitted to her grandmother that she was doing drugs, but she didn't go into the details of it. Mm. Phoebe was a life force, and men were drawn to her. Her friend said she brought Phoebe to a party once, and within a half hour, five guys fell at her feet. Damn. At 13, Phoebe and her friends would go to a bar with fake IDs and a $20 bill. They would... I said that weird. (laughs) (laughs) $20 bill. (laughs) It's one word. word. (laughs) We we were more stuck on the at 13. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Just casually. She said that they would come home having had plenty to drink and Phoebe would have a fistful of drugs that men gave her. When she was 15, Phoebe ran away from home. Her parents' relationship was deteriorating and she wanted to be on her own. Phoebe was away for eight weeks and finally went home after one of the people she'd been living with, a man who had just gotten out of prison, pulled a knife on his partner and Phoebe feared for her life and the lives of those around her. Mm -hmm. Understandable. Yep. So Phoebe went home and um, around the same time when she was 16, one of her teachers fell in love with her and they (gasps) began a relationship. Poor Phoebe. Her teacher was 30, (gasps) almost twice her age. And it was through that teacher that Phoebe met her friend, Bren Hessian, with whom she was close until her death. Uh, But the teacher actually lived with Phoebe and Natalie for a while. And people said that even though the relationship was technically illegal, it was genuine. Uh-huh. And Phoebe was with this teacher for about two years before she started dating Bren Hessian's brother, who was also older. But this seemed to be a trend for the women in Phoebe's family. Oh. So she sort of learned it from her mother and her grandmother. Mm-hmm. Phoebe's mother also dated a teacher almost twice her age when she was 16 as well. Phoebe's father was 14 years older than her mother. And Phoebe's grandmother was 11 years younger than her grandfather. Wow. Mm. Okay. So I can see where she got that then. Ran in the family. It's more the reaction to him being a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. She was his student, presumably. Mm. Yeah. It's probably worse for him. Yes. Worse for him than her versus her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Who hasn't had a crush on one of their teachers? Right. You're lying if you say no. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. That's accurate. Phoebe dropped out of school in her junior year and she worked various jobs in sales and services. In her teens, Phoebe's parents divorced, and it was hard on her. Mm. In her late teens, Phoebe was convinced that she was depressed. Her father, Len, was actually a psychiatrist, and he referred her to a colleague since it wouldn't be a good idea for him to treat her himself. She was prescribed antidepressants, but Phoebe didn't take them like she was supposed to. She was putting herself on and off the meds, which wasn't a good thing. She'd take the pills until she felt better, then she'd stop taking them, and then she would get depressed again. 
And uh, Phoebe's father actually felt like it was more her drinking, like she would drink and then be really bummed out. And he felt that it was more like a consequence of her actions as opposed to like true depression. Hmm. And Phoebe's drinking also became problematic. She would be clumsy and inebriated after just a few drinks. And her family had concerns about the drinking and the effect that it was having on her. One day, her grandmother, Jeanette, noticed a Band-Aid on her arm. Phoebe told her grandmother that she had cut herself to inflict pain. She assured her grandmother it wasn't a suicide attempt, and she promised she would call her grandmother day or night if she ever had thoughts about hurting herself again. And Phoebe's relationships with men tended to be unstable. She would have periods of drinking, and she would flirt with other men, and it was just a roller coaster ride. In mid-2009, when Phoebe was 23... She met 39-year-old Anthony Hample while she was working reception at the Lindley Godfrey Hair Salon. Lindley Godfrey was a celebrity hairdresser and Aunt was a client. I mean, this was one of those like super fancy hair mm-hmm. salons. Um, Aunt Hample owned his own firm, A-Live Events, and he was an events promoter for music, fashion, and other big events. And I mean like big events. Some of his clients included Kylie Minogue, Charlize Theron, President Bill Clinton, Prince, Michael Jackson, Nicole Kidman. Wow. I mean, like, okay. big events. Award-winning events. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ant was handsome, very well-connected, and financially secure. And Ant was struck by Phoebe and invited her out to dinner. She accepted, and their relationship began. They dated for about five months before he asked her to move in with him at the Balencia Apartments. There were conditions when Phoebe moved in. Phoebe paid Aunt rent and agreed to share the expenses. Aunt didn't want her working as a receptionist at the hair salon, though, because he felt that it was beneath them. So he got her a job at Savvy, an advertising agency, which was more his speed. She worked three days a week at the agency. Maybe ultimately a better job. I'm assuming the agency might have paid better than a receptionist at a salon, but I I don't like the beneath us kind of. Agreed. Yeah, I don't like okay. it either. I mean, like, that's like where it. he met her. If she liked yeah. working there, she should have been allowed to stay. And it was a fancy place, right? So- yeah. But I mean, like, advertising agency versus yes. hair salon. Um, I mean, and he was, like, upper echelon, so. I wouldn't understand. No. <laughs> can't relate. So Phoebe's drinking continued to be an issue, and Aunt and Phoebe's relationship was rocky. Phoebe told her psychiatrist that Aunt was verbally abusive towards her. Her mother recalled one time Aunt was in Paris. Phoebe stayed in Melbourne, and she promised Aunt she wouldn't drink while she, he was away. Phoebe went to an art exhibition and broke her promise. Her mother met Phoebe at the exhibition and drove her home. Aunt had been calling from Paris incessantly, and when they finally spoke, they fought about Phoebe's drinking, and Aunt said, I don't even know who's sleeping in my bed. Which mm. seems a little bit dramatic. Just a little. Yeah. Just a little. And at least she had her mom drive her home, so she was being safe. Yeah. You know. Which, by the way, is it Melbourne or Melbourne? Do we know? I think it's Melbourne. Technically, like if you're no. from there, that's how you would say it, Melbourne. Uh, oh, I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> Pause, though. please. So we just did uh, some quick googling, and I have been pronouncing. I was saying Melbourne. It's Melbourne. So my apologies. I shall pronounce it properly moving forward. Mm-hmm. And she was a Taurus. You're so right. <laughs> Had to get that one in. <laughs> you know who always knows this information? The Googles. Mm-hmm. The Google machine. Phoebe and Aunt were good together when they could get away together, but at home it was hard for Phoebe to be a part of Aunt's social life as most of Aunt's events were accompanied by drinking. Phoebe and Aunt, quote-unquote, broke up four times in the last six weeks of Phoebe's life. 
On October 5th, Phoebe sent her mom an email asking if the offer to buy her an overseas plane ticket for her 21st birthday was still on the table. She said she might need to take up the offer on short notice for a quick getaway. Her family's also from Australia, though, right? Yes. Okay. She's 23 right now? Yes. Okay, so she's like that gift from two years no, ago. No, she's 24 now. Oh, she, so from three so years she ago. turned 24 by that time. Oh, okay, so she's still asking for like back payment. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. Yep. Um, on October 20th, Phoebe left Aunt's apartment with no intention to return. She decided to visit her grandmother, Jeanette, in Malacuta. She wanted to leave her job at the agency and get a job in Malacuta. She planned to stay sober and she wanted to go volunteer in India. She was in uh, Malakuta with her grandmother for three days, in which time she went to her first uh, AA meeting and she found someone who could offer her a job. And the whole time she was there, Aunt was calling her constantly to try to get back together. And Phoebe told someone that she had met at AA that she wished that he would stop. Jeanette told Phoebe that she needed to go back to Aunt and make a clean break, but that didn't happen. Aunt convinced Phoebe to give the relationship another chance, and Phoebe told her family on October 24th that they were getting back together. Phoebe told Jeanette that her and Aunt had talked about beating, quote-unquote, the monster, and that Phoebe planned to limit her drinking. The relationship was going well for a few weeks after that. On November 23rd at 10 a.m., Phoebe called Len to tell him that Aunt had thrown her out and asked him to pick her up. Len drove her to his apartment where she stayed for the next three nights, Aunt took Phoebe out to dinner on November 25th and begged her to return, and she agreed to go back the next day, and Len couldn't talk her out of it. Um, I am infuriated about how often she keeps going back to this guy. Maybe it was a decent relationship, or they loved each other, but the, the core tenant of, like, he is going to continue to expose her to the thing that she's addicted Mm -hmm. to. Like he's being selfish asking for her back so many times. Like she needs to heal. Like she can't be in those situations and get better. Nope. And it's such a bummer to hear that she kept going back. He must've been very charming because all the information, there's obviously way more information about Phoebe than I'm including even in my 20 pages of notes, (laughs) but basically like she was spirited and anything that she put her mind to she would do i mean like she was going for a black belt and she was getting it in two years versus five because she just wanted to do it and like so she just anything she wanted she'd put her mind to and she would just do it so for her to say i'm leaving him and then she just goes right back into Hmm. it like it must have been one of those like she was weak for him she loved him he was very charming very convincing and it just just had a hold yeah, and I have to imagine if she's trying to quit drinking and, and be sober, that's probably coming with a lot of emotions and he might be a source of comfort yep. like in her mind. So right. I can't imagine that was an easy situation. And I don't think like I don't think Aunt was in any way like encouraging her drinking. I think it's just like all these like dinners and events they yeah. go to, there is drinking. Mm-hmm. So for someone that is trying to abstain, like sure. to be around it, it's just so it's too tempting and it's one thing if there is drinking but also like aunt should have abstained with her and Mm. maybe maybe he did maybe that's not really the vibe that i was getting from how his persona is right if he was ashamed of her job um i'm assuming he's not really the most supportive and caring boyfriend out there yeah but i don't know i don't know well we'll get into it a little bit more so phoebe returned to aunt's apartment at night on november 26th On Sunday, November 28th, around 9.30 p.m., Phoebe talked to Natalie, her mom, about her younger brother Nikolai's 18th birthday party. 
Um, Natalie asked how things were going with Aunt, and Phoebe held her finger up to her mouth and said that her and Aunt were watching a DVD. Natalie and Phoebe said they would meet on Friday, December 3rd at 8 a.m. to decorate Natalie's house for the party. On Monday, November 29th, Phoebe had her weekly breakfast with her father. The weekly breakfasts were a great way for Len to catch up with Phoebe and also keep an eye on how she was doing week to week. And Len's birthday was actually the next day on November 30th. The family had planned a little party for Wednesday, but Phoebe said she couldn't go because she had tickets to a U2 concert that Aunt had organized. So instead, she suggested that they all go out to dinner on Thursday at her favorite restaurant called the Golden Triangle. Around 2.45 that afternoon, Phoebe rode her bike to Lindley Godfrey's salon and spent some time with him drinking coffee. Which, again, I think she's, like, friends with this guy, so, like, she probably enjoyed her job as a receptionist there. Mm -hmm. She then went back to the Balencia and had to bring her bike in with her because it had to be stored in the apartment. In the lobby, she ran into the hotel manager, Eric Giamario, who told her that a permanent space for her bike was available. Uh, He thought that she'd be really excited because she'd been having to drag her bike Mm. back into the apartment, but he said that she was acting kind of strange and hardly noticed him when he told her the news. Eric said Phoebe was normally very cheerful and polite. Aunt got home that afternoon around 3.50 p.m., and they went to an early dinner with Aunt's friends, the Rockmans. Phoebe promised to be on her best behavior and only drink two glasses of wine, but she drank more than that and started telling Mrs. Rockman about her depression. Aunt tried to cut her off, but they ended up leaving and got back to Valencia around 7.51 p.m., so not a successful dinner. Around 7.51 p.m.? (laughs) At exactly 7.51 p.m. My my grim sense is tingling. (laughs) This seems bad. You gave a lot of exact dates, but uh, the exact time is really... So I think the exact... So that timing is fine. I think that's just because this apartment... I'll go into it in more detail, but this apartment has, like, key fobs. So I think they're just pulling the times, like, in the book that I was reading. They're pulling, like, the exact times. No, no, no. We're only on... I'm going through, basically, the events of the week leading up to her death. So right right now we are on Monday, November 29th. Okay. Um, I appreciate all this. I can't solve the case if I don't have all of the background details. Exactly. It is true. I'm filing things away. Okay, (laughs) good. Uh, So Phoebe was mad and defiantly kept drinking and Aunt went and locked himself in the bedroom. Phoebe called her friend Linda Cohen and her mom's partner, Russell Marriott, to complain about the argument with Aunt. She then called Brent Hessian at 10.30 p.m., and he was free to meet. She had actually called him four days earlier to tell him she had broken up with Aunt and wanted to meet, but he'd been busy at the time. Phoebe met Brent at the European Beer Cafe at 11.30 and jumped into his arms when she saw him. Brent said Phoebe's iPhone was ringing the whole time with Aunt looking for her. Around midnight, Brent wanted to go home because he had an early start, but Phoebe wanted to keep partying. Phoebe got so annoyed with Aunt calling that she threw her iPhone in the gutter. Phoebe actually had two phones, an old Nokia that she used and the iPhone that Aunt had given her. Bren picked up the iPhone and gave it back to her before he left her. Phoebe then went to her mother's house in Clifton Hill. Russell was there and let Phoebe's mom know that she was safe but drunk. Russell stayed up talking to Phoebe until around 3 a.m. And Phoebe went to sleep on the spare bed and asked Russell to wake her in the morning so that she could get to work because she didn't want to get fired. Tuesday, November 30th was a bad day for Phoebe. She told Russell and her grandmother that she was headed to work, but she never went. She arrived back at the Valencia around 9.08 (laughs) a.m. after Aunt had left. Midday, Phoebe phoned her psychologist she'd been seeing and asked if she could see her. 
Psychologist said she couldn't see her or even talk long on the phone, but gave her the numbers for various suicide hotlines for Phoebe to call. And she told her that if she felt bad enough, she should go to Alfred Hospital. Phoebe apparently called the hospital and then the psychologist again. Phoebe then called Bren and left him a message saying that if he didn't call her back, she would throw away her phone and leave the world. Bren got the message at around 6 p.m., but said he wasn't too worried as Phoebe was known for being erratic and would disappear for several days. He tried to call her back later that day, but her phone was off. Phoebe ended up meeting up with a guy, we'll call him Bob, that she hadn't seen for a long time. Bob said they met up for coffee and had the best conversation they'd ever had. Phoebe told Bob she was going to volunteer in a village in India, and she told him that she felt embarrassed for Aunt because she worked such a menial job and he deserved better. Phoebe was out to party that day, and she asked Bob to bring her to see a drug dealer, and she brought two ecstasy tablets. Bob thinks she took a pill on the drive to his house to view his latest art creations. Phoebe tried to kiss him, and Bob stopped her, so Phoebe started punching and kicking him. (laughs) (laughs) He restrained her until she calmed down. Phoebe then went outside and started playing chicken with the traffic. Bob said he didn't think she was trying to kill herself as she was picking cars that went slow. Bob said he was going to take her home as he'd basically had enough. It was around 930 and they were driving home. She insisted that he let her out of the car. He let her out and Phoebe didn't turn up at Valencia until around 1230. And no one knows what she did during those three hours. So Phoebe was on a bender. Yeah, Yeah. I'll say. On the morning of December 1st, Phoebe was still asleep when Aunt left for work around 9 a.m. Aunt originally said that he took Phoebe's iPhone with him that morning to be serviced, but that same day around 10.30 a.m., a text is sent out from Phoebe's iPhone, and it says, Hi, family. I'm in bed and about to sleep, and when I wake, I will transform into the most incredible human being you've ever seen. Not... I will go to hospital. It's safer there, and I hear the special tonight is tomato soup. Delicious. Nutritious. I love you all very much, but not enough to send an individual text. Sorry about that. But time is sleep, and I must be on my way. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a dream. X. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. X? Why would she sign it X? I think that's like hug. That's all X's are kisses. Yeah. Yeah. Kiss. So Phoebe had sent that message to her dad, aunt, her boss, her mom, her brothers, Tom and Nick, her grandmother, and Natalie's partner, Russell. The family was naturally worried about her. Jeanette exchanged texts with aunt, and he said Phoebe was sleeping off a bender. He said he'd have Phoebe call when she was awake, and he said he went to check on her midday. She told him she'd taken two sleeping pills. Uh, They were actually pills that Aunt had been prescribed to sleep on the plane for their trip to Paris that they had planned later that month. Uh, Phoebe told her family she was concerned about the trip because she was afraid that Aunt would propose while their relationship was rocky or that they would have a falling out and she'd be stranded in a foreign country with no money. So that was a random grim fact for you. Mm, Fair. To make sure she didn't take any more sleeping pills, Aunt said that he took the sleeping pills back to work with him. And the sleeping pills were called Stillnox, which is also known as Zolpidem, which is also known as Ambien. Oh, uh, oh no. <laughs> no. Ambien does Another, not work well in our cases. So many grim cases yep. with Ambien. Yep. At two seven, around 2.17 p.m., <laughs> Aunt's cleaner, uh, Sally, arrived She worked hard because Aunt wanted the apartment to look like no one lived there. 
she liked Phoebe and felt that the way that Aunt treated her was more like a parent-child relationship than partners, and she said it gave her the creeps. Mm. Phoebe was sleeping in the room when Sally got there, which it was unusual for her to be there. Sally quietly cleaned the rest of the apartment and then knocked on the closed bedroom door. Phoebe came out in a t-shirt and shorts. Sally said neither Phoebe nor the room smelled like alcohol. Sally thought Phoebe might be sick and asked if she could do anything for her. And she said that Phoebe gave her an absolutely dazzling smile. And Sally said that she also suffers from depression and said that like when she's down in the dumps, she absolutely could not produce a genuine smile Hmm. like that. Sally cleaned the bedroom and then Phoebe went back to bed. Sally said she left around 5 p.m. Aunt got home around 730 and he said he and Phoebe stayed in that night. He ran her a bath, gave her a massage, and cooked her dinner. He brought home the plane tickets for Paris to show her the trip was really going to happen to try to lift her spirits. Around 8 p.m., Phoebe called her dad. She realized she had forgotten to call to wish him a happy birthday. And she told her dad that she was hungover from her bender the night before and that aunt was taking care of her. Phoebe told her dad, I really need to stop doing this. Hmm. That was the last time Len spoke to his daughter. Oh, no. So on December 2nd, 2010, Aunt went to the gym at 8.15 a.m., then left at 9 a.m. for work. Around 11.30 a.m., the fire alarm went off, and all 23 floors of the building had to be evacuated. Phoebe is seen on the CCTV footage leaving with her dog during the first fire alarm around 11.44. The fire alarm actually went off again at 6.05, but no no evacuation occurred that time because the they called it the fire brigade, which is funny because we don't call it that in America. Showed up and they shut it off. Uh, both times were both fire alarms were caused by contractors working in the penthouse hmm. in the building. Beth Ozilup, a concierge, was scheduled to begin her shift at the Valencia starting at 4 p.m. The garbage compactor had just had a major service, and Eric meant to check in and make sure all was well. Towards the end of his shift, he hadn't had a chance to check and asked Beth to do so. Around 6.35, after Beth had seen the firefighters off after the second alarm, she was just about to sit down when someone told her there was a mess in the elevator. She went to get the vacuum cleaner, but it wasn't working, so she needed to get the dustpan and brush that were kept in the locked compactor room. She went over, unlocked the door, and tried to open it, but something was in the way. She threw her shoulder into it, and she triggered the automatic light that lit up the room. Inside, she could see that a bin had tipped over, and there was garbage all over the floor. Then Beth saw that there was a bleeding brunette woman lying motionless on her back between the door and the wall, and she actually thought that she was a mannequin at first. Beth backed out and stood outside of the door for about two to three minutes, collecting her thoughts before peeking back in, checking it out in her peripherals because she just couldn't look at the body. She said there were congealing blood trails leading toward the body. Beth panicked. She called Eric, and Eric said that he could basically just hear her, like, breathing on the other line. And then when she finally told him what she saw, Eric told her to call Triple O, which is their 911. Mm -hmm. And police were there within minutes. Eric Giamario and Tony Basil, Basile, maybe, the manager of the company, arrived to the Balencia around 715, 730. Eric told the police right away that if they wanted any CCTV footage, they should start downloading it now so that it didn't get taped over. An ambulance was called and arrived on scene around 7.30. Christy Cook, who was a paramedic, ran to the scene. She could see the body on the floor, but she was stopped by the police officer at the door. 
He told her it was a crime scene and that she couldn't enter. Christy said this went against all of her instincts and training. In fact, she said she lost a lot of sleep over it in the weeks after Phoebe's death. She could see Phoebe was lying on her back with cuts to her right thigh and hip, and her right foot was in an unnatural position. She said Phoebe had general generalized cyanosis or a blue tinge, no spontaneous respirations, and she appeared deceased. But she was not allowed to go check on her. In fact, nobody ever touched Phoebe to even see if she was still warm, to see if she was breathing. Mm. Nobody checked her. Meanwhile, Aunt had gotten home to the Balencia around 6.05 p.m. Anthony could not remember if his front door was locked or not. Aunt looked around and things didn't quite add up. There were post-it notes with scribbles on the kitchen counter that had not been there the day before. He said the bedroom had a makeshift shrine on the bed with a photo of Aunt and Phoebe, a photo of Phoebe's cat, and a lot of, quote, rambled notes that Aunt said Phoebe writes when she smashed. Her handbag and keys were on the kitchen counter, which Phoebe could get out without her key, but not back in. There were also two empty glasses on the kitchen table, and there was broken glass on the floor. Aunt said one of the glasses smelled like vodka. There were candles burning, and Phoebe's hair straightener was plugged in on the floor. Aunt also saw blood on the mouse to the computer, and he saw that the computer was on. He actually went onto the computer looking for any letters or additional information as to Phoebe's whereabouts. At 6.51, Phoebe's father, Len, called Phoebe on her iPhone. According to Len and the numbers on his phone bill, Aunt answered Phoebe's phone. Aunt said he didn't hear Phoebe's phone and actually called Len from his own phone at 6.52 because he thought Phoebe might have gone to see Len. Did that make sense? It made sense in what you explained, but not why Aunt said that. Okay. So so Len said that he picked up Phoebe's phone, or that he called Phoebe's phone and Aunt picked up, and Aunt says, oh yeah, I talked to Len, but on my own phone, and I just called, right? Right. Okay. And that's because Aunt, Aunt said he took Phoebe's iPhone to get service. I was going to ask that question, mm-hmm. yeah, is he at this point still servicing the phone? Like, should he have it right now? Like, no. would it be done? Okay. It would be... Still at the place, okay. Yes. And at this point, does Aunt know that there's a body downstairs and that, okay, so it's these are unrelated at the moment? Yes, theoretically. Mm-hmm. Theoretically. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, six around 6.51. Um, Len told Aunt that he was calling to see what time he should meet with them to go out to dinner. Aunt told him that Phoebe wasn't there, but her keys and bag were there, so she couldn't be far. Len was worried, especially after getting the weird text message. Aunt didn't mention the blood or the broken glass to Len while he was on the phone. So after Aunt talks to Len and while Phoebe is missing, missing, Mm -hmm. at 7.20, Aunt calls the restaurant that they were going to eat dinner at that night and orders takeout for one. Okay. Okay. So just after 8 p.m., Aunt buzzed the delivery boy up to the 12th floor, and the delivery guy tells him that the front of the building is swarming with cops. He said he hoped his dinner wasn't cold, since he basically had to walk up the street to get there. So Aunt goes down to the lobby and approaches acting senior sergeant Andrew Healy. He said, I live here. What's going on? Healy told Aunt that a woman's body had been found in the trash compactor room. Oh, no, Aunt said. My girlfriend is missing. Could it be her? 
Aunt said he'd been at work all day, but he was calling Phoebe every couple of hours on the home phone because her mobile was broken. And he said she was suffering from depression and was taking medication. Can you imagine how bizarre this conversation is where you like walk up and they're like, we found a body. And he's like, my, my depressed yeah. medicated girlfriend's missing. Hmm. Could it be her? Do you think? Do you think it could be her? It just feels like it can't be this obvious. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not. And I will. I'll put. He's, I'll put many a disclaimer. I am not saying that anybody yep. did anything. I'm not insinuating anything. I am just giving the facts. Uh, they look sketchy, but there's more. There's an ex- at least I can come up with an yes. explanation for how he's behaving, and it. He probably thinks she's gone on another bender mm-hmm. again. So maybe he's like, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. Like, or I think that's the wrong way to say. It. I always say these things the wrong way. <laughs> oh, guys, I'm dumb. But what I'm trying to say is, I think he's just like resigned himself to the fact that like their plans are not what he thought they were going to be mm-hmm. for the night, and yeah. like maybe she's on another bender. Maybe she was mad because she had to sit at home all day or bored or something there's a broken glass on the ground she got drunk and she wandered off like she'll Mm -hmm. be back and that's why i think he might not have mentioned it to len because if she fell had a glass and fell and cut herself like he maybe he's trying not to mention that and call it out so i'm with you i can't i'm certainly feeling a certain way right now but i could i could argue either way the only thing that i will say is um later on when it is questioned about this like why he didn't mention it to len he said it was a quick conversation and he was so concerned about phoebe's whereabouts that he didn't mention it Hmm. so it's like if you're so concerned about phoebe's whereabouts like you're on the computer you're ordering takeout like it just doesn't jive it just it just doesn't jive but i think there's also probably a lot about in Phoebe's relationship that just didn't come to light and just yeah. maybe how they functioned in general. Yeah. So maybe it just makes a little bit more sense than what we're seeing yeah, on the outside sure. yep. now that it's being presented. But Healy asked if she had any distinguishing features and showed Healy his wrist tattoo and said that Phoebe had one to match and that she also had a stud in her upper lip. He asked Aunt to get a recent picture of Phoebe and Healy and Aunt went upstairs. Healy asked if Phoebe had a tattoo on her stomach, which Aunt confirmed. And then when Healy saw the recent photo of Phoebe, he said that he believed that she was the dead girl. Healy left Aunt alone in the apartment and returned with another detective. Healy noticed the broken glass and some blood on the floor, as well as the post-it notes. They also observed the blood in the 12th floor garbage room, and there was a spot of blood on the door handle. Aunt was then left alone in the apartment again. Aunt called his mother and stepfather. He then called Len to tell him that Phoebe was dead. Aunt told Len to contact Phoebe's brothers and come to the Balencia. Natalie was unloading her car near her house when she saw the two missed calls from Len, and she called him back and asked, What happened? Have you found Phoebe? Len said in a broken voice, I hope you're sitting down. She's dead. They found her near the rubbish bins at the apartment. Natalie fell to her knees in the gutter next to her car. No, 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 it's not true. I can't talk. And she hung up. And Russell actually had to pick her up from the ground and carry her inside. Russell called Jeanette to come over. And when she arrived, Natalie told her the news. Jeanette, again, this is Phoebe's grandmother, had texted Aunt that morning. And Aunt had replied around 830 that Phoebe was a sleeping beauty right now and not the beast that she was. Resting well, and I've explained now is the time to heal. Then when she feels okay, we'll work out a plan. So Jeanette just couldn't believe it. Aunt had also called his closest friends, Arch and Linda Cohen. 
Linda had been friends with Aunt for more than 20 years. And when Linda arrived, Aunt was in a small room downstairs with detectives lying in the fetal position, screaming, why, why, she's dead. Aunt then got up and was wailing and crying hysterically, blurting out disjointed sentences. Around 8 p.m., they made a call to bring in the homicide team, but no one was available. So Detective Sergeant Mark Butterworth from the Piranha Task Force took control of the scene. Quick question. Did he have a wife? Who? A Mrs. Butterworth. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was thinking, too. (laughs) That went right over my head. It actually was so much better than you asked. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure he did. So Butterworth arrived on scene around 8.45 and took control. Officers filled in him, filled in what was going on. He was told that blood had been found in the trash room in the 12th floor, in one of the two elevators, and in the uh, parking lot. The blood in the elevator and the parking lot was likely to be from a cabinet maker who had cut himself the day before, but Butterworth sealed off these areas anyways. He then went to the compactor room and saw Phoebe lying face up near the doorway with her jeans around her knees and a severe injury to her right foot. One of the garbage bins was tipped over near her body and there was a smeared blood trail. While Butterworth was in the hallway talking to two officers, he heard garbage come down the chute. Nothing like contaminating a crime scene. Really? He ordered all the garbage rooms to be closed on all the floors. Healy told Butterworth about his discussion with Aunt Hample, the broken glass in the apartment, the blood on the floor, and the drops of blood in in the garbage room. Around 10 p.m., a forensic crew arrived. Leading senior constable Bernard Carrick was in charge of processing the scene. He found blood in the bin near Phoebe's body, a single lens from a pair of Prada sunglasses, and a blister packs of Diabetics 1000, a diabetes medication, which the name of that cracks me up. Mm-hmm. There was a plastic. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was the least enthusiastic. Laugh. I was processing uh, everything else and yes. forgot. Uh, I like. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a half a laugh instead of ha ha. It's just ha. <laughs> there was a plastic bag of garbage that had probably been in the bin before Phoebe. There was no broken glass, even though the glass inside the apartment was incomplete. Carrick found blood in the compactor and on the inside of the compactor room door. Carrick took swabs of these blood spots as well as those in the elevator and parking lot. Carrick also took swabs of the blood on the 12th floor trash room. Carrick went to Anne's apartment. He bagged Phoebe's journal that he found on the bed. He also found blood on the door frame to the study, the wooden study table, and the computer mouse. In the hallway, they found the broken glass fragments, and in the kitchen, they took a blister pack of Cymbalta, which is an antidepressant, some other medications, and some of the post-it notes. Carrick did not see the shrine that Ant said was set up in the bedroom. Around the same time, Ant was brought to the St. Kilda Road police station to provide a statement. Detective Justin O'Brien said that he observed no tears, mucus, or red eyes during the time that he was talking with Ant. The detectives were in the middle of interviewing Ant when he offered to type his own statement because the other detective was doing a slow hunt and peck. The poli- I, mean, I mean that would drive me insane too but still a little bizarre that would make me nuts too but the police were surprised at his offer and yeah. one of them said you can't even stand up how are you gonna type yeah yeah, yeah. so back at the valencia the crime scene unit came at twelve fifteen and took pictures once they were finished they could finally move phoebe's body which they did around two forty five a.m 
Butterworth saw Phoebe again and got a closer look. Phoebe was wearing jeans and a studded belt, both below her knees. Her belt was looped through the first and second loops on the front left, but the rest of her belt hung free. She had a gray t-shirt and was barefoot. Butterworth could see her ankle was severed, and he also noticed lacerations on her back, legs, and butt. When Phoebe was lifted up, a broken pair of Prada sunglasses fell onto the floor. She was taken to Western General Hospital, where she was officially declared dead at 4.30 a.m. on December 3rd, nine and a half hours after she was found, and she was then transported to the coroner's office. She was only 24 years old at the time. Mm. It's so sad. It is. Yeah, it's so sad. uh, I have so many questions, but I'm trying to Uh just hold them until after more facts because I don't. They'll probably be answered. Okay. So around 4:55 a.m., the fingerprint expert arrived to the Valencia. He checked the door to the 12th floor garbage room, the door to the garbage chute, and the area above the chute door. He also checked the door to the compactor room and the sewage pipe running through it. And the fingerprint expert said. No fingerprints of any identifiable value were located on any of the items that I examined at the scene. Mm. Uh, Around 11.15 a.m. the next day, Phoebe's family arrived at the morgue and were told that the police had ordered the autopsy. Len, Phoebe's father, was upset knowing exactly what would happen to his daughter if she was autopsied because he was a psychiatrist and... Did autopsies frequently. (laughs) Just kidding. No, but he had to go to med school, right? Yeah. So Phoebe's mother and father actually didn't want an autopsy performed, uh, but the staff told them it was not a choice because the police had ordered it. They said that only the senior next of kin could object. And her parents were baffled to hear that because they're like, we're her, we're her parents, of course, yeah. we're her senior next of kin. And they said that aunt had actually already registered at this as the senior next of kin because he was in a quote unquote de facto relationship with Phoebe. So in Australia, a de facto relationship uh, has a marriage status if certain criteria are met. The relationship has lasted for some time, usually at least two years. The parties share a common residence. A sexual relationship exists. There's joint ownership, use, and acquisition of property, and the parties are committed to a publicly shared life. That's like a domestic partnership here right yes i thought I had it was to look up the common exact law like, yeah, yeah. common law marriage yeah. yes yep okay but phoebe's relationship with aunt didn't seem to meet these criteria they lived a public life but they didn't seem to be in a committed relationship they'd lived together for 14 months but phoebe packed her stuff up and left several times in the weeks before her death and told family members she wanted to leave aunt and aunt she also paid aunt 120 dollars per week in rent well, I don't think that one really factors in. Right? No, but it's what, well, because there's one of the factors is joint ownership, use and acquisition of property. So she's living with oh, aunt, oh, but oh. it's aunt's apartment right. and she pays yeah. them rent. Okay. So That's like, what it's not, yeah. what do gotcha. they jointly own? Right. Gotcha. So Phoebe's mother called aunt to discuss their feelings about the autopsy, but aunt said he wanted an autopsy to know what happened. So it went forward. The autopsy took just over three hours and was performed by Dr. Matthew Lynch. Dr. Lynch said Phoebe's injuries were consistent with a fall down a narrow chute over approximately 30 meters, which is over 98 feet. The injuries to her lower body and legs were more severe than those to her upper body. Phoebe's right foot had been virtually amputated and was attached by a couple tendons. 
All the big arteries that deliver blood to the feet had been severed, including the popliteal artery, which is a lower branch of the femoral artery, the main artery supplying blood to the lower limbs. Those are important. Very important. Mm. Phoebe had a one centimeter bruise on the outer side of her right wrist, a two centimeter bruise on the outer side of her left wrist, and she also had bruises on her left shoulder and the top of her right shoulder, about the size of fingerprints. The question was how she would sustain bruising like that when she was going feet first down a narrow trash chute. Dr. Lynch later said that the bruises were consistent with someone grabbing Phoebe's wrist and shoulder prior to entering the garbage chute, but he couldn't say it definitively. My thought was, and I didn't see anybody mention this, but Phoebe had just been on a bender. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's stories about from Bren that she went there and she jumped up on him. You know, she's being crazy. She's punching that guy, Bob. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, mm-hmm. like, how many times have you ever had, like, a crazy night out and you wake up with just bruises, like, every yes. time? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, I wonder if, you know, if she, like, if she's running into traffic mm-hmm. and somebody grabbed her arm. Right. Like, to me... Yep. To me, that's not yet yeah, sure does it add to like the mystery of it, but like, yeah. especially with what she'd been doing the days previously, like, I wouldn't say, like, oh, that definitely lends me to believe that somebody else was involved. Yeah, I'm surprised you hadn't found anything related to that because it, it's not assumed, or you can't make the assumption that it's related to the incident that caused her death. Right. Even if it had happened an hour before, it may not be related to her death. Right. So, yeah, I'm and, with you. And that's why all he could say was that it's possible that she had them before she entered right, the chute, but right, they yep. weren't like narrowing it down. But they weren't from getting in the chute. Like the marks on her shoulders weren't like, well, she didn't go in head first. She went feet right. first. Never she mind. went feet first. Yep. They were right. not, they were not consistent with anything that would have happened to her right. in the chute. Except right. for somebody stuffing her in there, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. But because they don't know timing of everything yep. exact enough. Mm-hmm. You can't tell if it's related. Yep. Right. So she also had a subdural hematoma on the left side of her brain, which Dr. Lynch said may have been caused when the brain was removed during the autopsy. And they said that Phoebe had been bleeding on the left side of her scalp. Do you guys want to know about the toxicology reports? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Was there Ambien in the toxicology report? There was. Uh, so Phoebe's blood alcohol content was 0.16. which is double the legal limit in the u.s and more than triple the limit in australia which is 0.05 percent oh i did not know there was a different limit there that's a grim fact yeah grim Mm. fact yeah unless you live in australia (laughs) (laughs) then it's just life (laughs) then then it's just a normal fact it's still a grim fact (laughs) (laughs) she also had a therapeutic dose of zolpidem or stillnox or ambien in her system Uh, Based upon the information provided by Ant, the Stillnox in her system would have been around 36 hours old because Ant had said that he had taken the Stillnox tablets to work with him on December 1st after Phoebe had said that she had taken some. But experts later indicated that the levels in her blood were not consistent with that timeline. So they were not 36 hours old. It was fresher than that. Okay. So Dr. Lynch observed that the consumption of ethanol, a.k.a. alcohol, in patients taking zolpidem is absolutely contraindicated due to described side effects, which include complex sleep-related behaviors. Such as sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should. Don't don't fuck with Ambien, guys. Don't, don't yeah, drink no, and take you, sleeping pills. Please no. don't. No. If you've learned nothing yeah. from this podcast. <laughs> because what we've learned from this podcast is that if you take Ambien, you either wake up dead (laughs) or you wake up and people around you are dead seriously it's just it's not good yeah 
So Phoebe also had quinine in her system, which is used to treat muscle cramps and malaria. And nobody mentioned, I didn't read this in any of the articles either. And I don't know why I knew this, but um, quinine is actually in tonic. So I'm oh. wondering if she drank a lot of vodka tonics on her bender. Oh, and that's maybe. why we're showing up in yeah, her system. That's a very legitimate guess. Yeah. Wow. I don't know why yeah. I know that there's quinine in <laughs> yeah. tonic, but um, tonic's gross. So yeah, I can yeah. understand that. Vodka seltzer all the way. <laughs> so she was also on Cymbalta, uh, which is an antidepressant, as I mentioned earlier. And she also had the anti-coughing drug. Okay. Forgive me. Dextromethorphan aka robitussin in her oh. system oh my god that alone will fuck you up yeah i literally wrote which can mess you up on its own let alone in combination <laughs> with these other drugs and alcohol so she was robo tripping she was yeah. on ambien and she had twice the legal limit of alcohol in Yikes. her system or three and times antidepressants yeah which antidepressants. also should not be combined with heavy drinking no. right <laughs> So Dr. Lynch actually went to Valencia to see the shoot himself to determine if her injuries were consistent with the fall. He said, quote, I viewed the shoot from the 12th floor and also from the ground floor. I formed the view that it would be possible for a woman of Miss Hanchuk's size, 166 centimeters and 57 kilograms, which is about 5'5 and 125 pounds, to enter the shoot if intent on doing so. With respect to the question as to whether any other party was involved in assisting her into the shoot, I make the following comments. If she was conscious and capable of defending herself, I would expect to see some form of defense type injuries to the upper limbs and none were noted. Obviously, if she was incapacitated in any way, for example, by the combined effects of ethanol and prescribed medications, I am not in the position to exclude the possibility of involvement of other parties. That reminds me of your lawyer talk in your texts. It appears that it is possibly. Yeah, it appears that it may be likely and possible. Yes, that's a very um, scientific slash legal uh -huh. answer. Uh huh. So Phoebe's clothes were also sent to the police forensic lab uh, with photos from the autopsy so that they could try to match the injuries to her clothing damage. But it didn't really work out. The jeans were already stiff and heavily bloodstained. The damage to the area around the buttocks and the lower right leg where Phoebe's most severe injuries were found seemed to suggest that the jeans were being worn as usual when those injuries were inflicted. However, there were two long tears in the jeans, one 17 centimeters, which is about 6.7 inches, on the back panel along the side seam, and the other about 23 centimeters, or 9.1 inches, on the right front leg. Neither tear had gone through the fabric and neither lined up with any of Phoebe's injuries. According to the forensic officer, injuries to a body and damage to clothing don't always line up, so her findings weren't too unusual. The forensic officer said much later in court, in my opinion, no conclusion could be drawn as to the position of the genes on the deceased from this damage. So I have a theory, and if you're going to talk about this later, um, well, sorry, but I wondered if she made it if we assume she made it through the shoot and was either somewhat conscious and became conscious whatever was alive when she landed i wonder if she had the presence of mind to try to like get her belt for a tourniquet or like address her wounds and something i mean now that would be extremely difficult but i wonder if they think that she might have had the jeans in regular position going down i wonder if that's why so i had thought about that but 
one of the problems with this case is if you can solve like a tiny piece of it or come up with something that would make a tiny piece of it make sense, then the rest of it doesn't oh. really make sense. So if you're saying yeah. so they there's no doubt that she went down this trash chute. There's no doubt that she went through the compactor. And there's no doubt that she was alive in that room based on the blood trails that were in there. True. Yeah. But one of the theories is that she was in such a drug induced haze that she put herself in this trash suit shoot. So if that's the condition that she was in, then you're saying later she has the presence of mind to, to treat her injuries mm-hmm. once she hits the bottom. If a trash compactor can't wake you up, I don't know what can. I was going to say <laughs> adrenaline. Though, yeah, because, that's true. So yeah. over the weekend, my husband and I were partying because it was my birthday. And we Happy were. Thanks. Uh, so we were celebrating and having a good time. And this is the dumbest thing to get an adrenaline rush over. But like we were feeling pretty good. We had like a good buzz on and we were making little non-bread pizzas. And halfway through making them, we noticed that the cheese was moldy immediately we both sobered up and we were like what the hell like we were both feeling so good and he looked it up and it's actually like if there are situations that can produce enough of like this adrenaline response in you it can override the depressant effects of alcohol and other things that you might have taken um this is a really stupid example because (laughs) i just didn't want to eat moldy cheese i mean that's fair but (laughs) No, but it's a fight. Yeah, you're right. I mean, huh. your body enters like a fight or flight yeah. and just yeah. kicks all that other stuff to the side and says, yeah. okay, huh. like, let's get for it done. For some people, it's when their, you know, life is in danger. And for me, it's when I'm about to consume mold. <laughs> <laughs> to arguably, their own. Yeah. yeah. Arguably Teach also them. in danger. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay. But I could see that. But you're right. Anytime you make one piece make sense, the yeah. other pieces don't make sense either. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's no there's no consistent theory to explain all of it together it just doesn't it just doesn't seem to work sorry colby will figure one out by the end of this i don't know guys i don't really have a good theory at the moment Mm. there's i'm gonna make it worse okay (laughs) i'm gonna make it worse great in phoebe's jean pocket the forensic examiner found a piece of paper with a phone number written on it the police found that it was to a prepaid number that had been disconnected both the name of the purchaser tina smith and the address associated it with it were fabricated Hmm. so that was weird okay so after the autopsy len and natalie were concerned that they wouldn't be allowed to say farewell to their daughter in the way that they wanted and that phoebe's body would be released to aunt as the senior next of kin on december 7th they engaged a solicitor to write to the coroner to say they were the presumed next of kin and wanted to have phoebe's body released to them and a little grim fact is that a solicitor is a lawyer in places other than america True. And they also use the term barrister. That one I didn't know. Oh, like the bar exam. Oh. And actually, well, in law school, there's uh, like a prom that they call the barrister's ball. Oh, that's so sweet. Wow. That's nice. Well, that has better alliteration than lawyer's ball, which could go a whole different direction. <laughs> yes. Later that day, to their relief, they were told that Aunt had agreed to have Phoebe's body released to them, but he wouldn't agree to give up his status as senior next of kin. That same day, Ant posted a notice on his Facebook saying, quote, For those of you around the world who don't know the sad news, my partner Phoebe struggled terrible depression much of her life. She took her life on Thursday to ease her pain, to be at peace. There will be a memorial next week. This ruffled feathers because how could Ant know it was a suicide when there wasn't even an official verdict yet? Well, and the homicide detectives were there too. So right. why would you just, ass- they're just there because 
there were no other homicides in Australia that day and they needed something to do. Like <laughs> now I, again, I'll play, I know we do this a lot, but I'll play devil's advocate on this one. If he had seen what Phoebe had gone through and all the, you know, the bender, he got the text allegedly and you know, he, he knew what shape she was in. And then she, he hears the facts that she went down the trash chute and landed in the compactor. I guess I could see why he thought that I certainly wouldn't have put it on Facebook. But if he's so fine, but if he's going to assume that, then why would he have wanted an autopsy to know what happened to her? Oh, if yeah, he's he pushed so, for it. Yeah, if he's so certain that she committed suicide. Maybe he just wanted to know details. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to know what was in her system and exactly how she died. And I don't know. Maybe he just wanted answers. And there's actually, I didn't include this in my notes. Again, I said there's so <laughs> much information on this case and that Phoebe's Fall podcast is so great, but... There was actually like a meeting at the Valencia after Phoebe's death that um, Phoebe's mom went to and her grandfather was actually a detective for like 28 years. Hmm. So he was like, if you're going to go talk to aunt, like you should bring a recorder and you should record this conversation because like you may never get another chance to do it. So she had like this terrible tape recording because it was mm -hmm. like in her bag and there was music playing. But at that meeting you know, aunt was talking to everybody and he basically said like, I have no guilt over what happened. You know, like Phoebe was struggling. I never would have left her, but he said that he didn't ever, 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 ever want to know what happened to Phoebe. He said that he wanted to picture her the way that she was in her bed with her sleep mask on. Okay. Well, so again, what I said. Yeah, like it just doesn't yeah. make like no. the pieces never, ever add up in yeah. any, like any way, shape huh. or form. Like, there's just so many inconsistencies yeah. all the way around. So, um, unlike Aunt, Phoebe's family was extremely suspicious of the circumstances of her death. So, I just mentioned that Phoebe's grandfather uh, was a retired detective sergeant. He retired after 34 years of service, and he was a detective for 28 years. Uh, his name is Lauren Campbell, and he did not believe that Phoebe would do something like this and did not believe that she would commit suicide like this. He said that they were in the midst of so many family events and not only was she intending to celebrate her father's birthday on the night that she died, but early the next morning she had planned to go and help her mother set up for her brother's 18th birthday party and then Lauren's own 70th birthday party was only days away with a big family gathering planned. This is um this is almost giving me Rebecca Zahau vibes in that like rebecca had made all these plans for right like in the near term in the long term in the midterm it you know it, nothing to indicate that she wasn't planning on being around right and they were basically saying like like sure she was depressed and she had her ups and downs but she was like very into her family and she was right. looking forward to these events and it doesn't make sense that she would just commit suicide in the midst of all of it and they were saying who would commit suicide by garbage shoot yeah like who would even I didn't even think about that. Like who would do that? Just someone with a flair for dramatics? I guess. One of her friends said that if she was going to commit suicide, they would expect that she would do something more poetic, like jump off a bridge or jump off a waterfall. Um, and her mom said that she probably would have done something like take pills. You know, if you're into mm -hmm. drinking and pills, like that's probably the yep. the best way to go. But Natalie wanted to gather all the information that she could, and she asked Aunt for Phoebe's belongings. So Aunt gave Natalie a box, which he said was everything of Phoebe's that they didn't jointly acquire. 
Natalie went through the box when she got home and found that Phoebe's passport, birth certificate, Medicare card, her new wallet, the camera Lindley Godfrey had given her, her laptop, and her journals were all missing. Why does Phoebe have a Medicare card? I'm thinking that Medicare is different in Australia than it is in in okay. uh, the United States. I'm <laughs> I was like, you need like Medicaid? A, <laughs> I think it's probably like just health insurance okay. in general. I didn't Google that one, Colby. That's okay. Well, I just having a background in healthcare for some amount of time despite not being there that was a red flag i'm like whose identity did you steal i would have had 21 pages of notes probably (laughs) different in australia yes okay and phoebe wrote in a journal every day so she thought it was bizarre that her journals wouldn't be there i i just wanted to confirm colby's or your assessment that it is just just the medicare i mean the the healthcare in australia because also there's Oh, because they don't have private insurance like we do. Do they actually have good health care? Yeah. Yeah. I believe this says publicly funded universal health care. And we shall move on because we're not going to dive into that one. We'll leave that one alone. We are relying heavily on the Google machine today. We are. We are. Because like I said, I I I could have like 30 pages of notes. I really could. Um, so Natalie emailed aunt about the missing items and said she was especially interested in the journals. A few days later, aunt turned over the laptop and the wallet, but there was still no sign of Phoebe's official documents or her journals. On December 8th, aunt wrote a long email to Len and Natalie CCing many others. He said that he was deeply hurt that Len and Natalie had challenged his position as senior next of kin without consulting him. He said he would permit Len and Natalie to organize a funeral and make arrangements for her cremation. He included an excerpt from a letter he had written to the coroner defending his status as senior next of kin. He said he didn't want to sully or dishonor Phoebe's memory by fighting over who has the best claim to take charge of her body. He said, quote, my pain is insignificant compared to the pain Phoebe would feel if she knew they had taken this course. Okay, a comment. I am not pro-aunt to be clear i'm just trying to think about all angles of this case if we knew for a fact that either someone else killed phoebe or that she committed suicide if we had some way of knowing that for a fact could you think of aunt as just a tremendous douche like you know what i mean like could you listen to everything you're saying and imagine you know it's not him and he just did all these terrible douchey things but not guilty. And I feel like I can. Yeah, no, fine. But as as a mother, if if I, which we're talking super, super hypothetical or I'll like cry about it. But if I lost my child and the boyfriend that she had known for like 18 months that she had just broken up with four times in the last six weeks tells me that they have a stronger claim as the closest person to her, like legally, mm-hmm. I would lose my mind. Well, completely agree, but it doesn't make him a murderer. No, but he no, is just a douche. Point. I do he, agree yeah, with that completely assessment. Completely agree. Yes. yes. So I'm oh, just, I'm trying to imagine that, like trying to set aside, it's almost just not, not that you shouldn't include it, but it's almost distracting in this story because it's makes him seem so guilty when he could just be a douche. Sorry I think, if that word I think you sort of like hit the nail on the head though. Like I don't even think all the evidence added up together are enough to point to Ant being involved, but like his behavior 
it's just sketchy and sucks. Totally. Yep. Totally. Like that's, I think yeah. he was just very controlling and he wanted to maintain yes. the last piece of control over her that he could right. because he right. controlled where she worked and he just mm-hmm. seemed very controlling over what social events mm-hmm. they went to because they were together at stuff for him. Like she didn't want to embarrass him in public. So I just think that he probably had a lot of control over what she said and what she did and how she behaved. Exactly. And this is to maintain control. I'm just listening yes. to this as like listening to someone delusional doing this. Right. And I'm with you. I, I think it's insane. He said that he would be arranging a private memorial and that Jeanette and the boys were welcome to come. Basically saying Len and Natalie were not welcome. Oh. Ugh. Aunt's service was held on December 12th, and he gave a eulogy. Phoebe's brother and grandmother attended, and Len and Natalie held their own memorial service on December 15th. Hundreds of people attended, and most of those people hadn't been to Aunt's service, apart from Aunt's family and Phoebe's friend Alice. Phoebe was cremated the next day, and just as another grim fact... Um, In addition to the memorial, Phoebe's father, who was of Scandinavian descent, actually labored over a year to build a Viking longboat, driving more than two hours to the shop where he was building the boat. And about two dozen people gathered on the beach for Phoebe's send off. Phoebe's ashes were placed on the ship surrounded by letters from everyone. And the boat was draped in garlands made of marigolds. It was lit on fire and they all stood as and watched as it sailed away. That's so touching and devastating. So devastating. And like her dad was saying that it was like therapeutic for him to like build this for her and like do this send off. So absolutely heartbreaking. Detective Senior Constable Brendan Payne from the Crime Investigation Unit was assigned to take over the investigation into Phoebe's death and prepare a brief for the coroner. Eric Giamario, the manager, had pulled the key fobs for apartment 1201. The Valencia residents had key fobs assigned to them, and the keys were needed to access the building. So the residents' comings and goings were recorded every time they swiped their individually numbered key fobs in the elevator, the parking lot, the front door, or wherever they were going. And the key fobs are also needed in the elevator and only allow you to access the floor assigned to it. Oh, okay. Despite Ant saying that he returned midday on December 1st to check on Phoebe, the record seemed to show that Ant had left around 9 a.m. and returned around 7.30 that day. On January 24th, Payne invited Ant to come down to the station to answer a few questions about issues that had been raised, like when he brought the iPhone for repair and to address the inconsistencies in the key fob records. Ant was accompanied by his father, George Hample, who insisted on being present because Ant was grieving. Payne asked him about Phoebe's iPhone, and Ant said he couldn't remember whether he brought it in for repair on Wednesday or Thursday. So Wednesday was December 1st when Mm -hmm. that tomato soup text message went out, and Thursday was the day that she died. He was sure that he checked in on Phoebe on Phoebe midday on December 1st and couldn't say why records wouldn't reflect that visit. And he reiterated it was during that visit that he took the still knocks away. Detective Payne poured himself into this case. He tried to review the CCTV footage, but most of it was gone. Despite Eric Giamario warning the police the night of Phoebe's death that footage could be taped over, the police did not download the video. And there was a CCTV camera covering the hallway leading to the compactor room and the entrance to the elevator 
but the footage was gone. That's infuriating. Oh. They were warned. They were warned, but also, why wouldn't the hotel just not write over it? Why yeah. wouldn't, right? Like, set it aside. It's evidence. I think the system automatically does it, and I know that Eric did, like, Eric was ultimately the one that, like, requested the download, and mm. I guess the police had watched some of the footage while they were there, but by the time they actually got it downloaded from the server, it had been taped over. Oh. And isn't this, like, the crux of... Yeah these cases that remain sort of a mystery or unsolved it's like there was evidence that could have been Mm -hmm. had that just wasn't yep oh that one's i was just picturing if that if we did have that and we did know what happened maybe we still would be telling this case just i know just it would be a solved fully solved one oh on march 10th 2011 detective Payne executed a warrant to collect ant's imac computer The only item of interest was a coroner's office form 25, which was the form for the release of a body. And it was shown as being downloaded on October 19th, 2010, almost two months before Phoebe's death. That's weird. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of the devil's advocate on that one. And I got nothing. Just maybe he just likes forms. (laughs) <laughs> what was what was the it was for the release the of a release body. of a body from the coroner's office? Maybe a form like that would have information on what your relationship to the deceased would be in order to have their body released to you. I was going there at the same time. Yep. Yeah, but I mean, like, why are you downloading it in October? Because you're planning to kill her. <laughs> and needed to know what what level of right. kin you needed to be. Yeah. We'll get we'll get to that. Oh, we'll get to kill, that. Why would he kill her though? Like, what benefit? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if he did. I, I really don't. don't. I, what would his yeah. motive be? Like, I have this younger girl who I like to control, and she won't obey me. But like, if she's just gone, she's just gone. Like, they're not married, so it's not like she's going to take half of everything he has in a divorce. Like, I'm. Yeah. I'm just like, what benefit is her being deceased to him? Yeah. No, I don't know, but it could have just been a heat of the moment. I mean, they had a rocky relationship. He was tired of her drinking. They kept fighting about it, so it could have just been... I mean, a million scenarios go through my mind. Like, it could have been that she something did happen to her, and he didn't know what to do with it, and he did put her down the chute. Oh, she was alive. Never mind. But maybe he thought she was dead, and she wasn't. But, like, there's all these crazy, slightly nuanced scenarios that, like you said, kind of, when you think of one thing, then you realize it doesn't fit. And the more information you get, the worse it is. Yeah. It really is. Uh, So Phoebe's own computer showed no record of activity since October. And Detective Payne spent a lot of time trying to pinpoint the issue of timing with the repair of Phoebe's iPhone. Payne tracked down the repair shop, but there was no paperwork showing when the phone was dropped off, but did have a receipt showing Aunt's dad picked it up days later. And now the book that I read pointed out, and it's a very valid fact you're telling me that a shop has no paperwork indicating that you have left a 600 hundred dollar item in yeah. their posi- yeah. possession but they have a receipt for when you <laughs> picked it up like that is mm. if that that probably is genuinely their practice but that's just a terrible practice yeah. like you would think that you would have some sort of receipt well yeah for like insurance purposes like what if you got robbed when you had all of these people's stuff yeah. like it's like an inventory of what you had on hand to prove it Right. And like, imagine if you went back and you're like, okay, I'm here to pick up my phone. And they're like, what phone? You never dropped anything off. Can't prove otherwise. Yeah. Maybe the iPhone repairman did it. Maybe he did. That's, he wanted that's to, it. That's he wanted right. to, we figured it out. Laura solved it. <laughs> you guys, if you're loving Grimm. <laughs> um, so 
Detective Payne also spent time analyzing the phone records from Phoebe's iPhone and the Nokia, Ant's phone, and the apartment landline. He couldn't analyze any of her emails or texts because they had all been deleted. Hmm. Her brother, Tom, who knew her passwords, had actually discovered shortly after her death when he logged in that all of her emails had been deleted, but it was unclear at what time that had occurred. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. So it's not necessarily that Aunt deleted them right then or anything. It's just that at some point they were deleted. Okay. Correct. All right. So Payne visited with the forensic pathologist, Dr. Lynch. He wanted to know more about the bruises to Phoebe's wrist, shoulders, and neck that we talked about. Uh, Dr. Lynch just said it was some form of blunt trauma and couldn't specify any further. Detective Payne was working hard to investigate the case in addition to his usual job duties, but that could not overcome the lack of police work that occurred from the start that we've sort of hinted at. Mm -hmm. Police basically prematurely deemed Phoebe's death a suicide and their investigation matched. The theory was that there was no foul play and that Phoebe had cut her hand on the broken glass that was in the apartment and then climbed into the chute while trying to dispose of the broken glass. I, too, accidentally do that. (laughs) Happens to the best of us. (laughs) The wine glasses that had been on the kitchen table were never dusted for prints or tested in any way. Police didn't take a statement from Eric Giamario until January 10th, 2012, more than a year after Phoebe's death. And when they interviewed him, they learned that there was a resident, Ruth Foster, who had been on the elevator shortly before 4 p.m. on the day of Phoebe's death. And she said that there was a male stranger, stocky, with dark brown hair, who was also on the elevator. He was wearing a light-colored top and dark pants, carrying an object about 20 centimeters long and 10 centimeters wide, or 7.8 inches by about 4 inches. He got into the elevator and pressed floor 12 without a key fob and he must have been buzzed up by someone on level 12 ruth had told this to eric about the same time that phoebe was murdered but he had said that the homicide investigation was over the police didn't interview aunt hample's staff to confirm where he was during the day on uh, on december 2nd until four months for one staff member and 11 months later for two others as we previously mentioned Mm -hmm. The police didn't take statements from the EMTs, which doesn't really matter that much since they wouldn't let them tend to Phoebe. Uh, Police didn't discuss the garbage chute with the manufacturer to determine whether it was even physically possible for Phoebe to get into the chute. And although Phoebe's blood was found on the study desk and the mouse, police didn't seize the computer to check when it was last used until three months later when Detective Payne took it. Another officer said he had noticed large, dirty boot or shoe prints heading away from the door at 12.01 and said, judging by the length of the stride, he believed that the person who left them was either tall or running, but the prints were never even photographed. And as we said, it's this that's the most frustrating piece of the case. Like, had the police just left no stone unturned, they'd say, like, listen, we just didn't come up with any evidence to corroborate any other scenario other than a suicide or an accident. But there's just these gaps that are missing. Mm -hmm. It's just missing information. So the theory is that Phoebe went into the trash compactor room and then went in this tiny garbage chute and fell down the 12 floors into the compactor. And that's where she was found in the room. So we're going to talk about the mechanics of this garbage chute and the trash compactor because it was heavily investigated, not by the police, but by her grandfather, Lorne Campbell. 
So describing the shoot. So this is what you would see in an apartment. There's this garbage room. It's like basically a blank wall with this like little silver box, which is the garbage chute door. And the chute door is 67 centimeters or 26.38 inches off the floor at the bottom hinge. When the door is open, the leading edge is a little over a meter off the floor or about 39.5 inches. So pretty high. Mm -hmm. The door is stainless steel and opens as a flap with supporting side panels. So think of a mailbox, Mm -hmm. like a a U.S. postal mailbox. Um, The door is spring loaded, so it closes automatically unless someone's holding it. An ant cleaner um, who had to use it every week described it as a bear trap. Like it was spring loaded and would just slam shut. Yep. So there's a steel frame around the chute that protrudes from the wall only one centimeters or about 0.39 inches. So not enough to use as a handhold. And there's nothing else to hold on to except the edges of the chute door. The opening from the edge of the door to the wall when it was fully open was 22 centimeters or about 8.6 inches and the diameter of the chute was only 53 centimeters or about 20.9 inches wide so you're talking 8.6 inches by 20.9 inches wide so not big no Mm -mm. like a laptop right yep like about about the size of a laptop The compactor had a sensor that detected the approach of a garbage bag, which would automatically start the compactor. And the compactor had a large blade that was used to flatten, compress, and chop the garbage before allowing it through the doors at the end to maximize the space in the bins. The compactor was usually set to automatic, but it could be set to manual operation if a greater degree of control was needed. For example, if staff needed to stop the operation for a staff member to deal with a fallen garbage bin. Photographs taken after Phoebe's body was found showed the switch of the compactor set to automatic mode. Okay. There was blood inside the compactor and on the inside of the compactor room door. So no one argues with the fact that Phoebe went down the chute and was in the compactor. Like that is clear. So Lauren didn't want to leave any stones unturned and he wanted to see if it was even possible for Phoebe to get into the chute. On January 28th, Lauren went to the Valencia with two of Phoebe's friends, Sarah, also known as Missy Howitt, and Viv Bambino. Detective Brendan Payne was also there observing. Lauren had an industrial safety harness on the girls, and Sarah volunteered to help with this experiment. Sarah was fit, like Phoebe, and was completely sober during this experiment. Sarah was actually in training for the World Women's Boxing Championship, so... Like, oh, Sarah. Yeah. yeah, Very fit. She was able to get her first leg up, but struggled with the second one because there was nothing to hold on to. Once she got her other leg in, her legs were pushing on the bottom of the door, which was causing the door to shut on her back and squeezed her against the wall. Viv followed suit and was able to get both legs in. So the girls couldn't actually go. They weren't actually sending them down into the shoe. They were just trying to prove whether or not somebody could actually even get up Mm -hmm. onto it. And two things came from this initial experiment. First, Lauren observed that the girls' hands were all over the door handles and the stainless steel frame. Mm -hmm. If you own stainless steel, you know what (laughs) fingerprints and handprints look like all over it. Yes. Yet there were no viable prints at the scene. Second, the girl showed that it was possible, 
but not easy to get into the shoot themselves, and they were sober. Phoebe's family said that no one as intoxicated as Phoebe would have had the coordination and balance to get in. Okay, I have two thoughts. If this is the time, I have two thoughts. Um, The thought about the fingerprints, the only thing I can think of is while they were doing the initial investigation, didn't trash come down? So other people were using the trash compactor. But you would think that 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 would leave extra prints or extra marks versus none. And... People, people who are putting trash in would pull the door handle true. and put the trash in. They wouldn't be touching the wall That's and true. the surrounding frame like the girls had to to get in. That's true. I was originally thinking like fingerprints overlaid other fingerprints. Mm-hmm. I, I am not an expert in case you didn't know. Um, but I would think that would cause them to not be viable. But you're you're right on where they are. So I don't know. That's my thought on that one. Um, Did they dust in like a timely matter though? Because a lot oh. of their stuff was delayed. Did they actually check the trash compactor shoot for for prints like shortly after the incident? So I believe that they sh- uh, that they blocked off that area, and then I think that they dusted for fingerprints at four fifty five a.m. So okay. next day, I mean, not yeah. like so crazy. not like super long later. Okay, my thought uh, for the second piece on the fact that the friends were sober is the only sometimes you overthink things if you're sober like they're probably thinking a lot whereas if again just hypothetically if she did it herself in the inebriated state maybe she just was not thinking about it didn't care how long it took wasn't thinking about whether or not she could do it right you know that's so those are again i'm just apparently my role today is devil's advocate but but you read my mind because (laughs) one of the notes that i wrote was no i love it I wrote that the girls were cautious and they were afraid of getting hurt, especially in this experiment, because they were 12 floors up right. in this garbage chute. Uh-huh. And I think a couple of times they were like, do you have like, you're sure you have me? Like yeah. they were they were actually afraid of succeeding, basically. Yeah. And I said, I wonder if it's almost like people who are um, drunk and involved in DUI accidents where like drunk drivers are often relatively unscathed uh-huh. because they're not. They're not bracing for right. impact. They're just loosey goosey. So, you know, you see other, the people that they hit die or are like mm-hmm. seriously injured and they walk away completely fine because they were just out of it when it happened. I'm only smiling because that was the analogy that I also thought of. So I'm on the same page. Yeah. But the other thing is um, that I, I I thought it was interesting, Laura. It was interesting. Oh. Please and, tell me. An expert on 60 Minutes Australia said that there was one of two ways that the drug could have affected Phoebe, the drugs and the alcohol. He said either she would have been incapacitated or it could have fueled a delusional state that made her determined to get into the shoot. I was wondering. Yep. Which we talked about earlier, like if Phoebe wanted something, she got it. And she was, you know, had a strong sense of justice. So if she was delusional and thought that she had to, get into this shoot they proved that it was possible for her to do so yep all right so lauren wanted to take it a step further he could show that the girls could get their legs in but he couldn't show whether they could actually get all the way through into the shaft of the garbage chute which they obviously couldn't do on the 12th floor So he went to talk to the maker of the garbage chute, Neil Bone, and Neil had told the police that he didn't think anyone could pass through the compactor in one piece if it was set to automatic, but the police dismissed him. He, uh, Lorne asked if Neil would be willing to make a replica, to which he immediately agreed. Neil created the replica with the same shaft leading down to a mattress, and on February 18th, Lorne and his team arrived to test it out. 
Sarah and Viv volunteered again. Sarah was able to climb into the chute again, but her shoulders were too wide to get into the shaft. Viv went next, and when she was getting her legs into the chute, she was sitting on the chute door, and the sides actually buckled, and the bolts popped out by the frame by her fingertips. Huh. Wow. Okay. So Viv carried on and was able to slide into the shaft, but she had to have one arm extended up behind her to keep the springs from closing the door on her arms. And then as her weight shifted into the shaft, the door was closing on her and pinching her against the wall. She finally made her way in, but both arms had to be above her head. And Neil Bone had noticed that if Phoebe had gone in the same way, her fingers would have been injured when the door shut on them before she was actually through. Hmm. So to finish the experiment, Lorne wanted to see if someone else could put a body into the chute. So he had Russell volunteer and Russell carried Viv over his shoulder and dropped her into the chute feet first. He was able to hold the chute door open with his free hand. So it was relatively easy. Mm -hmm. Not surprised. Yeah. Lorne also did another experiment in a building with the same compactor as the Balencia. And this is giving me uh, Richard Kraft's frozen pig vibes. He put two two sheep carcasses down the chute from the 12th floor. The sheep went down front end first and the compactor blade cut the front section completely off through the ribs and spine, clean as a whistle, Lorne said. The compactor had made five cuts in all, though Lauren admitted that the sheep was too small to be an ideal subject, mm. but still shows like the devastation right. that the compactor yeah. blade can do. Neil felt that the only way that Phoebe could have passed through the compactor without being crushed was if it had been switched from automatic to manual. He felt that it she would have sustained far more serious injuries unless another person or persons had been involved. This would have required someone to enter the compactor room and change the setting first from automatic to manual and then back to automatic, basically leaving Phoebe bleeding on the floor. This would make the case even more confusing had someone known exactly what to do, but it's all speculation at this point because there was no camera footage to say it did or didn't happen one way or the other. And police actually didn't know whether the compactor was on manual or automatic when Phoebe was found, but Neil was able to see it was automatic from the crime scene photos. Hmm. I will say I follow his logic there, but this is also why you don't have biased, like invested people doing the research and exploration with cases, because I would argue even if he absolutely meant to be unbiased, that he would probably like if I were him, I'm thinking like it's got to be it couldn't have been her doing it himself herself. And I think that there's probably some bias in, in thinking that uh, that someone else put Phoebe down the chute. Because I, I think that it's certainly possible that she just happened to go right through at the right time in the right direction, that she got some serious, serious injuries, but wasn't cut in half. And it's extremely unlikely, but it's not impossible. I right. would be so annoying on a jury, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm just the jury would be hung. Yeah. 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 For sure. So the Victorian Coroner's Act of 2008 sets out the criteria that make it necessary to report a death in Victoria to the coroner. A death must be reported if the death appears to have been unexpected, unnatural or violent or to have resulted directly or indirectly from an accident or injury. So, I mean, Phoebe's death. I would say it fits the the criteria. Yeah. 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 Once a death is reported, the coroner's job is to establish the cause of death, 
Which, I mean, we have this in Connecticut. We've talked about, like, the chief medical examiner's office gets involved, and then they're the ones that yep. ultimately make the decision on the, the death certificate, but we don't have the system that they do. So they have something called an inquest. And an inquest must be held if the coroner suspects that the death resulted from a criminal act like murder. The coroner also has wide discretion to determine whether or not a hearing is required and if it will be what they call an open inquest. The coroner can decide to have a hearing, but just decide the matter on written reports and briefs prepared by police, EMTs, and others. Or they can have what's called an open inquest, which is like a public trial where witnesses are called and cross-examined about the circumstances of the death. At an open inquest, the coroner can ask any witness anything if he thinks their answers may assist him. And it's not an adversarial system. It's just a fact-finding huh. system. But it become it can become heated with lawyers objecting to questioning or the relevance of certain evidence. And in the end, the coroner rules and the coroner's powers are broader than those of a judge. Which, hmm. I really thought that that was just a fascinating system. It that is. must be so helpful to the coroners. Yeah. Versus, like we talked about in the Richard Crafts case, they all got together with all these people in a room with the chief medical examiner, whereas in in Australia, it's basically like a trial where yeah. they can talk to witnesses and stuff. Huh. Phoebe's family wanted an open inquest, and F- Coroner Peter White wasn't sure an open inquest was necessary and scheduled a preliminary hearing for December 5th, 2012, just over two years after Phoebe's death. The Hanschucks needed an attorney because everyone else would be well represented. Ant would have the best legal representation, and so would the police to make sure they were covered. And the Hanschucks were at a disadvantage not knowing anything about the system compared to Ant, whose parents were both judges. Oh, did I not mention that? No, no, you forgot that little tidbit. Ant's father, George Hample, was a retired Supreme Court judge. And his stepmom, Felicity Hample, was a serving county court judge. Mm Mm-hmm. So they were important. Yeah. The Hanstrucks were having a hard time finding a lawyer to represent them, as almost every lawyer seemed to have trained under Professor George Hample. Natalie eventually found a legal team headed by Simon Moglia, who's primarily a criminal defense lawyer. Len also had representation at first, but his lawyer withdrew on conflict of interest grounds. After that, Len decided that he could question medical witnesses himself, especially given the cost of legal representation. Natalie was concerned about the legal fees, but Phoebe's friends worked quickly to fundraise. They made oh. 16000 at a benefit in Malacuta, which was about $15 per person in the small town, and just goes oh. to show you how much Natalie and her family were loved by the community. Oh, yeah. Her friends also organized a benefit concert that raised another $5,000. At the hearing on December 5th, 2012, they all expected submissions would be made and a date would be set for an inquest. At this hearing, Ant's counsel initially agreed to support an open inquest, but she submitted at the hearing that a full inquest wasn't necessary because there was no basis for the court to determine a murder may have occurred. The coroner told them to send in written submissions. Lorne, Phoebe's grandfather, was mad and got off on the wrong foot with the coroner. He wrote a letter to the coroner's registrar complaining that the first hearing was a waste of time and legal fees and could have been done by letter. He was concerned that the coroner expressed a preference for dealing with the inquest on the papers and had said that he would need to be very strongly persuaded before hearing oral statements in an open court. Lauren complained about the system and accused the coroner of failing to even read the police brief, which requested additional inquiries into the matter. Natalie had not been provided the full brief, and she'd also engaged an independent pathologist to review the findings of Dr. Lynch, but she was only provided photocopies of the photos from the autopsy, which was insufficient. 
Lauren asked the coroner to step aside because Phoebe's family had lost faith in him. He said the initial investigation was mishandled and that police prematurely concluded it was suicide. And he suggested that coroner White was trying to minimize the case. I mean, he's certainly not wrong about the first couple points there. No, there was more to it um, because the chief coroner wrote back defending coroner White and basically completely refuting some of the accusations that Lauren had made in his statement and uh, in his letter and basically told Lauren he'd have to live with it. Because Coroner White was going to be the law of the land. Yep. On March 26, 2013, it was announced that the coroner would hold an open inquest using his discretionary powers versus his mandatory powers. He didn't feel strongly that a homicide had been committed, but thought the cause of death was worthy of an open investigation. And this is not a criminal trial. The coroner cannot make a finding of guilt, but he can notify the director of public prosecutions that someone should be looked at. Okay. Huh. Okay. The inquest began in August 2013. So, a lot, maybe not a lot, but some of the information we've already talked about came up. I won't resummarize all of that, but I'm just going to pull a couple of the witnesses and some of the interesting stuff okay. that came up. So, during questioning of Eric Giamario, who is the manager of the Balencia, Aunt's attorneys went through the key fob records. And remember, the key fob records did not show that Aunt had returned to the Balencia on December 1st, like he said he did. Eric had done a control F search for apartment 1201 and had copied and pasted the results into a report. Aunt's attorney said that people suggested Aunt was lying based on those records. And then Aunt's attorney presented Eric with a master printout of the swipe records from December 1st that showed that a key fob allocated to 1201 entered the building around 1240 p.m., used the elevator, and then returned to the elevator around 10 minutes later. So it just didn't come up on the poll that Eric did? Yeah. For some reason, when he did the Control-F search, it pulled everything except those two entries. So there was also a panel of experts to discuss the drugs in Phoebe's system. Dr. Morris O'Dell was a forensic physician. Professor Olaf Drummer was head of forensic scientific services in the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. An associate professor, Narum Gunja, was an associate professor at Sydney Medical School with a specialty in clinical toxicology. That was a mouthful. They know their stuff. Yes. <laughs> so the team of experts could not tell when Phoebe took the medication in her system, but they said that based on the dose of Stillnox in her system, it could have been a therapeutic dose on the day that she died or an overdose many hours prior but that it couldn't be from the two pills the day before. They were asked about the strange behaviors associated with Stillnox. Associate Professor Gunja said that, with very few exceptions, parasomnia events involve routine tasks like cleaning. Not climbing into a garbage chute. But if that's you just me were saying cleaning, that. you might want to throw your garbage. Climb in after mm-hmm. it. Regarding mixing the drug, Professor Gunja said that alcohol and Stillnox together increase each other's effects on sedation, cognition, balance, and posture. The team was asked about Phoebe's ability to enter the chute on these drugs. The experts agreed that however difficult it was for someone sober, it would be even more difficult on these substances. They also agreed the drugs could make it more difficult for Phoebe to control her fall down the chute. Dr. Lynch also testified. He was asked many questions about the bruising on Phoebe's arms and wrists. He said that since he wrote his report, he took another look at the photos and conceded that the bruises were consistent with the possibility that someone grabbed her by the arm before entering the chute. Okay. 
There was testimony from Louise Brown, the forensic biologist who had examined Phoebe's clothes, tested the blood stains, and was also a qualified blood pattern analyst. Her description of the blood pattern suggested that Phoebe had fallen from the compactor into the bin, landed on the floor when the bin, bin tipped over, and then crawled around, found the door, and may have tried to reach for the handle. Mm. Which is mm-hmm. so devastating because they said it was absolutely pitch black Oof, in that yep. room, too. So, like, Oof. can you just imagine? I can't imagine. No. Regarding the clothing, Miss Brown testified that based upon the cuts in the jeans and the injuries to Phoebe's buttocks and right lower leg, she believed the jeans were in their normal position when the injuries occurred. And again, this was weird to me, too. It's not like the jeans could have... Like, they wouldn't have ridden down right. on the shoot because she was going feet first. Yep. You know, you mentioned maybe she took them off after the fact, but, like, would she have had the presence of mind to do so? But I think it's the opposite. I think she probably didn't have the presence of mind between the drugs and the alcohol and the pain. So she might have just been like, I need to get to it. I need to fix it. I mean, she probably has It's pitch black. She has no idea. She knows it's bad. Has no idea. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But and, I think it was and chaos. Somebody made the point though, so they're not positive whether the jeans were up or down. But they said if the jeans were down, she wouldn't have been able to lift her legs up to get into the chute herself. But if somebody had pulled her pants down, it would have made it easier to put her in because she wouldn't have been able to separate her legs and keep them from putting her into the chute. Mm. Yeah, interesting. All right. Okay. Yeah. And the coroner was very interested in the compactor. He was asked a lot of questions about Phoebe's injuries and whether they could be consistent with how the compactor works. Neil Bone said that for her to have only injured one ankle and not two, she may have lifted one leg. He said she couldn't have been crouching or kneeling because the blade would have hit other parts of her body. He said it was possible that the initial blow from the blade hit her ankle. She collapsed and the blade then hit her hips, which would be the second blow. He said when the machine hits a solid object, it cannot compact. The machine will stop. He said he thought that because there were no upper body injuries, she was likely just dropped through after that. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. It does. Yeah, it does. Um, But again... I know the sheep is not the same, but right. with, with the machine set on automatic, that blade like ripped through the bones of the sheep. Yeah. Well, I mean, it did rip through her ankle. It definitely right? did. Yeah. So, and then, I mean, your femur and hip is like the pretty strongest. strong. Yeah, strongest so part. again, I'm just trying to think because there's no answer in this. I'm trying to think of all the I think angles of all the theories. I still think I understand Neil's testimony that it couldn't have like he thinks her injuries would have been far more severe. But I think it's so unlikely that there was someone that would have known how That's, this compactor yeah. worked and switched it. Yeah. I think I think she almost lucked out in the injuries yes. that she got from the compactor. Like you said, she just fell the right way or the timing yep. was right. Or, yep. you know, she was an avid climber. Maybe the fall spiked her adrenaline yep. and she sort of climbed her way up a little bit to avoid the full the full crush of the blade. Stranger is that Aunt told Len that night that Phoebe had left her phone in the apartment. And Sergeant Healy had said that Aunt had shown him Phoebe's iPhone that night. And you had mentioned, like, you thought it was weird that Len said that he called the Phoebe's iPhone and Aunt had answered it. And Aunt said that mm-hmm. he called from his own phone. Um... So if the Nokia was lost, it had to be the iPhone right. that aunt had showed her. Um, but then he said it must have been his own iPhone that he was showing him. And then there were three text messages from December 2nd at 157, 431, and 816 that were all marked red. 
but the coroner pointed out that the designation doesn't indicate indicate who read them or when. Right. Sure. So they yeah. said it could have just been like when they got the phone back, they read the messages. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, honestly, even if we could prove that it's weird and Aunt was lying, which he probably was about all this, I still come back to like it's almost a distraction. It's a, uh, what is that? A red herring. Thank you. You're welcome. Because it, it seems like, oh, he did all this sketchy stuff and he was lying, which again, I think he was. But I don't think that makes him involved necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. So he turned over the iPhone to the police on December 7th, and the officer said that the phone and SIM card were provided. But the report analyzing the phone says that there was no SIM card with the phone. The phone was returned to Ant on December 10th rather than turned over to Detective Payne. And when asked about it, Ant said he didn't know where the SIM card was after the fact. And now the phone had been reformatted and was being used by a member of his staff. He said he had no reason to hang on to it. Can you feel or hear my eye roll right now? <laughs> Gremlins. Oh, yeah. They were like, you know, did you think maybe there would be an inquest? And he's like, no, I didn't think there was any reason to hang on to it. Uh, Ant was also asked about the night of December 2nd. Records showed that he logged onto his computer around 619 p.m. He said he had seen the broken glass and the blood on the computer mouse, and he wanted to check if Phoebe left a letter or information on the computer. Records showed he used iPhoto and GarageBand, and he (laughs) said that the programs must have just been open on the computer. At 6.51 is when he spoke to Len, and he said he didn't mention the blood or the glass because he was just focused on Phoebe's whereabouts, and the conversation was brief. At 7.01, iMovie was accessed, but he couldn't recall what he was doing. Linda Cohen, Ant's close friend, also testified. She said that Ant was acting strangely in the days following Phoebe's death. Linda said she saw Ant using Facebook and acting normally. Then when visitors arrived, he would turn on the waterworks and curl up on the couch. Linda said she sensed he was turning his emotions on and off. Mm. Detective Payne was the last to testify before a two-month recess. Two quick highlights. He confirmed that an information technology company had confirmed that the date of download for the release of body form on Ant's computer was wrong. It was not downloaded in October. Oh, when was it downloaded? I think at an appropriate time after her death. And then he also testified that they had found the unidentified male in the elevator the afternoon of December 2nd that had been mentioned by Ruth Foster to Eric Giamario, and they had no suspicion of him. Hmm. The inquest was officially closed on October 9th, 2013, and then they waited. On December 10th, 2014, Coroner White was ready to announce his decision. He ruled that Phoebe had climbed into the rubbish chute and fallen to her death under the influence of alcohol and still knocks. No one else had put her in the chute, and she did not enter the chute with the intention of committing suicide. The coroner concluded that she'd been in a zolpidem slash alcohol-induced sleepwalking state or deeply confused and disoriented. As a result, Phoebe entered the chute and began to climb down towards the ground floor. This without any awareness of the dangers implicit in this behavior. The report closed by attributing Phoebe's death to exsanguination and injury sustained while attempting to climb from a height in a setting of alcohol and zolpidem consumption. Phoebe's family was devastated. The coroner's own counsel had strongly advised that the only option was an open finding, and the coroner went against her advice, which was unusual. After the decision, journalists compared the coroner's finding to his counsel's brief, and the two interpreted the evidence very differently. His counsel, Ms. Simensma, 
noted the unexplained bruises to Phoebe's upper arms, the blood in the apartment, the lack of fingerprints around the entry hatch, the inadequacy of the initial investigation by police. She said with the evidence they had, the coroner couldn't make a positive finding on the balance of probabilities as to the involvement of Mr. Hample or any other third party. She said that she's not saying that Ant was involved, but rather there's an inability to exculpate him on the balance of the probabilities. She noted that there were aspects of Mr. Hample's evidence that were unsatisfactory. Her, her report also pointed to the lack of dirt on Phoebe's clothing or hands to draw an inference that she slowed her fall. And that makes no sense. The inside of that shoot was filthy. I mean, yeah. it's like garbage shoot. Yeah. Also... Phoebe would have had to have her hands by her side when she entered the chute in order to slow her fall using the sides. And Lauren showed with his experiment that was not possible. Lauren said the chute was too small for Phoebe to get her hands down and against the walls if she had gotten into the chute with her hands above her head. Right. And we watched the video. So there is a video of Lauren's experiment. I will post a link to it. But she couldn't get in the chute with her arms by her side. Like she needed them above her head to keep the door from slamming shut. And the last thing that I will say, well, there's two more things I will say before we discuss this. One more weird thing about this case. Around March 2016, Aunt's sister, Christina Hample, posted a photo of her and Phoebe. Her and Phoebe. She wrote, in loving memory, I just stumbled across my favorite pic of beautiful Phoebe. I miss you, darling. You were a fragile little flower that no one watered. You and your family were let down by the justice system and those who represent it. I only hope that one day the truth will come out so that they will have some peace. The post was only up for about 12 hours. Bizarre. Hmm. And then this is just as an aside. Just so you have it for your information. Do with it what you will. A grim fact, if you'll say. Um, 25-year-old Bailey Schneider was found by her parents with a gold cord tied tightly around her neck. She had been struggling with drugs and alcohol and had just broken up with her boyfriend Aunt Hample. The death was ruled as not suspicious. And let me be crystal clear. I'm not saying Aunt had anything to do with Phoebe's death or Bailey's death or anything. I'm just saying that is very unlucky for two of your girlfriends to have committed suicide. Yeah. I did not. So I knew this case mostly and I did not know that fact. Mm -hmm. So my jaw is on the ground. Eight years later, another one of Aunt's girlfriends was huh. dead was she also young is that what you said 24 year 25 old? yeah huh so guys what the fuck <laughs> all right colby what's the answer i think okay so there's a couple things that i think could have happened but the the one that's kind of standing out to me is um, i'm going back to the control and like mm-hmm. the shame and embarrassment that he has with certain aspects of like her personality or her lifestyle um what if what if she was in like such a drug induced state that she broke the glass and thought he was going to be mad at her for it and like she was trying to throw it down the garbage chute to hide it because you said part of the glass was never found theoretically could have gone through and it might have ended up in another bag or somewhere else in the room um and she was just thinking like oh my god if i don't get this thing back like to fix the glass because i'm trying to find a reason why she'd get in there i can't explain how she physically Mm could have done it because i just don't like you wouldn't have the balance with that amount of stuff in you to get in there without leaving any fingerprints. So I could have seen that. I just think he was probably manipulative and I don't think he's, I don't think he's 
guilty per se, but I don't think he's necessarily innocent mm-hmm. and like as squeaky clean as he yeah. wants to seem like he is. I, it's like the texting suicide case, right? Like that yeah. girl from Massachusetts was found guilty. She didn't actually kill him, um, but I don't think she intended to kill herself. I don't think it was yeah. a suicide attempt from everything that you laid out. Like one strange text does not a suicide make. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, like like as the ambient and alcohol and other things in her system like she might have just been whacked and wrote a weird text message like it was yeah. kind of, it was a little funny it was very suspicious but yeah. it wasn't like it Super wasn't like dark. devoid of no. hope or like right. emotion and like i've been in the situation where i've been very depressed and like i'm not making jokes at that yeah. point in time i'm like i i don't think i've been in her situation mm-hmm. per se but um i don't know it just didn't really fit the mold of somebody who tried to unalive themselves i just i don't think that's what she did so either it was an accident because of some sort of falling out that she maybe had with him or my other thought is maybe she liked how she felt when she took the ambient Mm. and mixed it with her other drugs and he took away the meds allegedly right a couple days before maybe the number she had was for a dealer or something and maybe somebody gave her some drugs maybe somebody saw how wealthy anthony not Anthony. It was his name, Anthony, or just Ant. It's it's A N T O N Y. I think it's Anthony. 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 I, yeah. I think I've been saying Anthony, but mm-hmm. I I stuck with mostly Ant because <laughs> my my brain doesn't want to say Anthony. Well, I think he had a lot of money. Like, what if somebody wanted to try to do something to try to like get mm-hmm. some money from him, and then she was just a drunk, not cooperative mess, and they were like, okay, yeah, we're not going to deal with this anymore. Yeah. I just I just don't buy that it was a suicide, and I don't think he necessarily directly killed her. Yeah, I don't think he was directly involved. It didn't seem like there was anything about like his day or his alibi that would point to his ability. Like it is possible that after he got home at six, she went down like they said that she would have bled out very quickly based on the way that her artery was Mm -hmm. severed. Like every time her heart pumped, she would just be like squirting blood out of that artery. So nobody felt her to see if she was even more so for them not to be able to pinpoint the death any more than you know between noon and seven sort of exonerated him on that yeah piece of it but um yeah i mean i i think i have to think of are you guys familiar with uh occam's razor that theory where the simplest answer is often the answer Mm -hmm. and i i think it's a little bit of that where i'm with you that i don't think he was guilty in that like i don't think he hit her over the head and murdered her i think for whatever reason she ended up in the trash room and i don't think it was thought out that she decided to go down the trash chute i think it just happened and i think it happened in the right way that her body just got in she went through the blades in the right way she landed and it was a tragedy but i don't think that there's i don't think it was a suicide and i don't think it was a murder the thing that makes me the most mad is I am 100% positive that the only option was an open finding. I think that the coroner's findings of fact were erroneous Mm -hmm. based on the evidence. When the dirt is not on her arms, when you're saying you're saying that she's in such a haze and she's so messed up to climb into it, but she has the the ability to hold herself up in this shoot like the evidence doesn't even match that no it doesn't and the evidence is very confusing like just leave it as an open finding like yeah. i don't think that his i don't think that his findings were justified based on the evidence yeah i think we're we're almost assessing multiple things here we're assessing yes. like i said whether or not yeah. Ant is a douche we're assessing <laughs> yeah. whether or not whether or not 
uh, Phoebe committed suicide. We're assessing whether or not the coroner's findings were appropriate. Like, there's so many right. things we're looking at. And I think that's why it's difficult. Not just there isn't like a person and we're like, are they guilty or not? There's too many factors and too many right. things that we're considering um, to make it clear. And that's yeah. why it's frustrating. Like I said, it's not technically unsolved, but it's <laughs> definitely a mystery. Yeah. Well, and it yeah. was definitely frustrating. So you're welcome. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> If you're, if you're enjoying listening to Grim, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. I will post some photos of Phoebe, who was so pretty, um, and the garbage shoot. And I'll also post a link to that video. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi or tell us what you think happened, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com and listen, learn, and stay alive. Until next time, Grimlins. Bye.